This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room community. So before you hear our July roundtable, we first want you to hear our new trailer and the news that we now have an official sponsor, Words Matter Bookstore in Pittman, New Jersey. Carol, the owner of the bookstore, is going to be releasing a trailer with us soon so all of you can hear about Words Matter and what its mission is. So in the meantime, please enjoy our Ivory Tower Boiler Room trailer our theme song, Lover Man, and our July Roundtable. Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Adam. I'm Erica. And I'm Mary. And welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We started out as a podcast and writing community, but what now exists is a liberal arts collective where writers and artists, both creative and performing, have found each other and can collaborate. Each month, our podcast and blog feature pieces on a chosen theme. We post daily to the website and weekly to the podcast. As we always say, let's put a bookmark in this. Head over to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and bookmark and subscribe to our website. Hi, um, hi, it's Adam um, talking for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We've got here Andrew, Mary, and Erica. Everyone say hi. Hi, everyone. Hello. So I thought it would be nice to open with a little transparency. We are coming hot off the heels of several other recording projects that we were doing today. Andrew and Erica were talking with Lev Raphael. The four of us were addressing our concerns about our about um, our guest interviewee, Helena Darwin, a lot of stuff going on. So if we sound a little bit rough around the edges, that's part of the package. And I just I wanted to start with that. But today we have the rather singular pleasure of getting to talk about one of the things that's really dear to all of us, which is teaching, right? We, we sort of have a, a binary theme this uh, this month, um, which uh, where there's sort of two stars that are in orbit around each other, right? One of them is teaching and the other is public humanities because public humanities doesn't only take the form of teaching. Um, I mean, I guess you could decide what you, how you define teaching. 
and say that public communities always takes the form of teaching. But I would say that writing an article isn't necessarily teaching, it's informing. There's, you know, there's shades of gray. There's a, God, I, f I feel like I'm talking about um, teaching the way Erica talks about sexuality and I kind of love it. Um, <laughs> You can hear that, right? The binary and the shades of gray in between. It's that's that's what we, that's what we do here. Embrace the end, right? Yeah. So, so all we wanted to do I love for that you tonight guys started picking that one up. It's a good <laughs> phrase. It's a, it's a good phrase. Embrace the end. Um. So, so all we wanted to do for tonight is we wanted to talk about some of the moments in our careers as students and as teachers that are really influential on our lives, even today, until today, right? Right. Um, and so I guess I was going to start, right? I, there's, there's so many, I mean, I've been in school basically from the age of five through the age of 21, and then from the age of approximately, I think 24, uh, through the age of 30, Right, so there's not a lot of years. And I guess before, before five, I was in preschool. I, I, I'm sure I could scandalize you with stories from, from my preschool days. Um, I once corrected my teacher on the number of moons Jupiter has. <laughs> I define oscillating fans and impellers. I, I get you. Nice. Well, we, we, all, we all have our... Our, our soapboxes, even even at a young age. So I wanted to I wanted to expand a little bit on something that I talk about in my big think, right? Which is my relationship with my music teacher, one one of my music teachers. Um, I everybody knows this. I come from a relatively privileged Long Island upbringing. I had a private piano teacher. I had a private voice teacher. Um, and I went to a school that was very nicely funded. So we had uh, this chorus teacher who was also the music theory teacher. And he was, he was my favorite. He knows that, I know it. He was, he was the reason I got through high school with even just the psychological scarring that I did. Um, and it really was, like I, I could tell so many stories, but it really was, it came down to two things. Number one, he treated me like a peer, okay, like a, like a small, irascible, ignorant peer, but still like a, like essentially like a peer. Our, our relationship was essentially collaborative, right? He wouldn't say, oh, you came up with this, so it was dumb. And a lot of adults do that to children, right? A lot of adults will, will not honor the suggestions, the experiences of children the way he did. And I thank him for that. It felt, working with him felt like I was collaborating with a mentor figure, not like I was opening my mouth like a baby bird and having the music theory inserted into me with no, um, with no feedback on my part, right? That's, that's a big deal. Like I remember one specific instance where he said, uh, I said, um, do you realize that the song There's, the, There's a Place for Us by Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, you know, from the from the musical uh, West Side Story, has the same melody as the second movement of Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto. I remember. I rem why do I remember this in such detail? It was really important. 
He said, no, they don't. Because <laughs> whatever, he was a blunt talker. It happens. Um, and so what I did was the next day, I brought in the two CDs. Um, this was back when you had to use CDs to prove a point. You couldn't just go to YouTube. Everything wasn't on YouTube. There was a YouTube, unlike when Erica went to high school, but everything wasn't on it. Um, so I brought in the two CDs and I played the one and I played the other. And he said, see, there's one note different. And I said, yeah, but that note, like, come on. And he's like, no, 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 but see that note. And then we went into a discussion and it was like, But that's the point is that we, um, for, okay, he, he also bet me um, Chinese takeout if I was correct, because um, why not? And, and, then, and then we, it wasn't just you, you got it wrong, sorry. It was that, that one note, yes, yes, it might be inspired by, by the Beethoven, the Bernstein might be inspired by the Beethoven, but that one note makes it a completely different melody because it enables it to go in a different direction anyway. So, um, so that's, that's, that's the story, right? And you can read all sorts of things into it. And, um, but the main thing is that, um, that what the things that we talked about, it, it ended up being a kind of music theory lesson, right? About melody building. But what it really was, was two people talking about something of mutual interest not even during classroom hours. I think I just approached him one one day. So that like that to me is what makes a good teacher, right? It's it's treating the student as an individual and it's putting in the time. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that those two things cost money. And if you're not paying your teachers enough for them to put in those two things, then you shouldn't be surprised as a school if you're not getting them. So, there we are. Yeah, I'm kind of curious how this builds, like what you've discussed, Adam, maybe builds into Mary's experience with teaching, like how you've been shaped, Mary. Like maybe if we just each go around and present our narrative and then come back together as a group, you know, see what the parallels are, maybe. Sure. So who wants like to- Like my narrative as a teacher or like my narrative as my Either. experience with teachers? Either. Either, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, well, I taught dance and musical theater to little kids. So I never, I don't know. I never really saw that as something important. Um, just because a lot of the time, even though it was something that was very important to me, I kind of was in, not that I was in a circle that didn't encourage it. I, I have a lot of extended family members who have never really seen the value in pursuing a creative career. Um, and I still face this now. I mean, I, I've had people ask me why I have a master's degree in creative writing. What can I do with that? You just wasted your money, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I will say as with that experience of teaching dance, but specifically teaching musical theater, to be able to see the kids that I've taught go through the program and age with the program and go through the different 
age levels and become so passionate about something that I was able to teach them or give them some sort of instruction on. That means a lot, uh, especially in the musical theater realm of it, because I do think when you're put in a, a space of musical theater and you have to portray certain characters or certain experiences, you are putting yourself into someone's shoes. And I think overall that makes you a more empathetic person um, because you are able to see these different points of view and understand different motivations to some extent. And just the fact that it's not valued the way that it should be, the way that I've grown to understand the value of it as I've gotten older, which is, this world would literally suck if we didn't have artists in it. I mean, you, you couldn't watch TV, you couldn't play games, you couldn't see shows, read books. I mean, literally nothing that, you know, part of what makes life worth living, those experiences, wouldn't happen without artists and wouldn't happen without people who said, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm really going to push and try and make it in here because if I can help at least one person escape from whatever harsh reality they have to deal with, or if it can help them look at someone they maybe not be getting along with in a different light, then, or just basically just helping someone, you know, get through a tough time, you know, escapism, you know, I think that's what makes what you do, not only as a teacher, but as a creative, what makes your job and what in the work you're putting forward so worthwhile. And I don't think if I didn't teach and haven't seen or didn't see that progression of my younger students in musical theater from going from the youngest program to one of the oldest programs that's there um, and being cast in leading roles. I mean, I remember specifically one kid I had, he got like one of the lead roles in one of the plays that they did in the oldest program. And I just remember being so proud that he was able to continue and to be able to succeed in something that he really enjoyed. And just to know that there, I had the, one of the smallest parts in helping that and in trying to nurture that, that's what makes it worthwhile. I mean, slightly contrary to what you had to say, I mean, for me, it wasn't about the money. I mean, I was also 16 at the time. So, you know, a couple hundred bucks at the end of the summer was, <laughs> was good money. But, <laughs> um, but the enjoyment and the fulfillment I got from that, even at the end of the show, like at the end of it, when they would put on the show and just seeing how proud they were of themselves, that they were able to go out on a stage and sing songs and do these dances that they remembered on their own 
in front of people, you know, it's just such an empowering thing. And, you know, again, like I said, for me, it wasn't necessarily about the money, but I do understand that the money does help in some situations. I mean, money does talk, we all know this, but I also think that speaks to the true character of what a true genuine teacher is, not someone who is doing it for the money, but for someone who genuinely cares about the outcomes of each individual student that they encounter. No, that's fair. I mean, no teacher. I mean, no teacher I know of is doing it for the money because they wouldn't. They wouldn't be doing. That's not what you do for the money. Like, if mm -hmm. you're a teacher who's doing it for the money, you're probably you're probably pretty dumb. Or not making a lot of money anywhere else, and this is the best money you know you can make, which is unfortunate in some situations. I do feel bad for those people, but yeah, I mean, I do. If it's okay, Erica, because I feel like my narrative yeah. kind of follows Mary in a way, oh. which well, is, um, you know, well, we have that performing art teaching um, experience. Um, I also did. I know, Adam, you said, did anyone have a comment? I think now I have a comment after hearing Mary, which is that I do want to recognize, especially now that I have been teaching for, um, I mean, actually, I was a tutor in, um, you know, I'm going to give myself a time limit. So I'm looking at my clock. Um, right, we said eight minutes? No. Uh, <laughs> but... I think I'll give myself five minutes. Um, that's all I need is I actually really started to follow this passion for teaching at a really young age, which is like my earliest memory of being taught was when I was around three because I had gone to um, a daily preschool um, for five days a week, um, daycare preschool. Um, I started at a daycare when I was, I'm trying to remember, I think I was around three months old. I started going to a five day a week pre um, daycare. And it definitely shaped the way that I interact with others, I think because I've been a lifelong student. Um, but also I feel like I've been a lifelong teacher because I was raised by um, a mother. Yeah, right. I'm not the only one who hears the feedback, right? Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, it's coming from Erica's computer. I'm not hearing anything, but okay. Come on, stupid thing. Right, we'll get it in post. So glad that we can edit it. Maybe it's a ghost. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I really started to gravitate towards teaching because my mom is a high school teacher um, and my dad was actually teaching at a community college accounting while he also um, was starting his CPA business. So I have, I have aunts, well, my one aunt was a drama and English teacher. Uh, my mom is a business teacher and she taught math too. Um, 
but yeah, teaching, it's such an interesting um, idea to bring up as our theme because it's so generative. Um, it doesn't always mean to me the classroom. I think what I'm thinking about is those performing art teachers I had. I was lucky enough and I wanna, I mentioned about the daycare because like Adam said, growing up with certain privileges, you get certain experiences. And unfortunately, I do have to say teaching is such a, um, can be very elitist of who you get who you get taught by. Um, and, you know, that's something for another conversation, but I just want to put it out there that, you know, I was able to have voice teachers and dance teachers, acting coaches, um, that was not free. Um, but also, what really I think spoke to me was the passion that teachers who I always learned from when I started teaching at Stony Brook, and it's now been, let me think, I have to do the math now. I started teaching in 2016. Um, so 18, 19, 20, 25 years, okay. Um, I just did the math. Almost going into my sixth year of teaching. Um, but I learned from those who are the most discussion-based and those who empowered the students. I always want to model that I am not the source of the knowledge. Yes, have I structured lessons in a way to get material out of the students? Yes, that is the prep work. But I really do believe in the Socratic method of making sure that every student contributes to build on to the next idea, that you have to do a type of ladder approach to generate knowledge. And I really believe that students learn so much outside of the physical space of the classroom. Like if my students start to analyze film in a different way when they're in the movie theater, if they listen to music as they're exercising and they think of the lyrics, to me, that's what critical thinking is. And that's what my role was. My role was to help them get that lens. It wasn't about, did I have them memorize every fact? No, that's why I don't believe in lecturing. I think lecturing is actually the stale, um, the way to end a conversation is to lecture. Um, and I should be clear, when I mean lecturing, I mean when no student gets their voice heard in the room or, you know, and I'll bring in here my public scholarship, which we're gonna continue into next month. So I'm not gonna give everything away, but um, I really, when I started going on walking tours myself, especially when I was invited to Karen Carboner, my outside reader, all things Whitman mentor, um, do a walking tour by Whitman birthplace of Jane's Hill, which I have now started to do. I learned it from her. Um, I saw how excited the general public was of learning knowledge from someone who has that specialty, but you have to really know how to access your audience. And it's not about jargon. It's not about bogging them down with information. It's about, here's the site. What do you see? 
how did Whitman envision that in the 19th century? What does it mean for us to look at it now in 2021? All of that to me is education and why it's so important for all of the benefits I've had of exposure to learning. I need to give back to communities. That's my belief. My belief is I need to share it now with the public because I've been so lucky and privileged to have had those experiences. So, you know, yes, I love teaching at the university, but I really like when I get to open the doorway a little more. Like when I get to hear from someone who is a full-time nurse practitioner and I talk about Whitman, where I talk about queer poetry, or even that I can teach queer poetry, and that's an opening at a coffee shop. You teach queer poetry? What? I didn't know that's a course. Like, it's those conversations that are so generative, and I think when my students realize that they can ask the same questions, that I do not have all the answers for them, and I actually say that to them, I am not going to give you all the answers, and you're actually not going to hear my interpretation on purpose, because I don't want you to know how I approach Whitman's Song of Myself. Like, I want you to know what's in Song of Myself, but I'm not gonna tell you how I queerly read it. That's in my writing, so you could read it, but, right? It's, and I do, I wanna say as I, you know, as I conclude, I think I've just realized how much I learned from these open discussion-based mentors of mine, that it was never about their ego. And if anything, I hope to continue teaching away from an ego as much as possible. It's not about me. It's not about validating what I think and hearing it reflected and mirrored back to me. Yes, I study Narcissus, and that's in my writing. Let me talk about narcissus in my writing. I don't want to be the narcissus myth, please. I don't like, I think I've just learned, you know, I'll end in the performing arts because that's really where I began with teaching from my own experience, from learning from teachers was in the performing arts. And it's really like when you are taught by an acting coach or a dance, right? very similar, that there's a reason why you learn improv. Because usually in improv lessons, that's when you learn your craft and you're put on the spot. And I like, I like approaching education and teaching that there needs to be an improv-based component, which is why I love what we're doing right now, very meta in our recording, which is none of us know what each other was going to say in our narrative. And I think that's more generative than us having known the our responses beforehand and creating a script because Adam and Mary have surprised me. I had no idea this is where I was even going to take my discussion. So on that note, thank you. And yeah. Yeah, I actually was surprised. I mean, I've heard um, I've heard a lot of I've heard you talk a lot about how like teachers, specific teachers, your chemistry teacher, your physical education teacher were integral to your coming out story. I assumed, especially since you've had a long day, I assumed that you would just go in that direction, um, like a, you know, like a channel uh, going downhill through the easiest um, 
path, but but you you went in a completely different direction. I'm, I'm glad to hear this other part of you. Um, I think I I mean as long as we've been talking, I I don't think that we've uncovered nearly as much as there is about your that like performing arts camp where you and Mary met. So now we have now we have a little bit of a window into that world in the, yeah. in the podcast. Main record. stage is a gem and. I do want to say they've been so grateful in sharing our um, call to have writers submit. And Mary and I learned a lot from the camp. Um, oh, yeah. That's the camp I was teaching at, the musical yeah. theater one that I was referencing. Yeah. No was, never, no was never a word that I remember in main stage of... I mean, unless it was cursing. Well, that, but I mean, in terms of creativity, it was never don't go in that direction or don't explore your passion. I think, yeah, as Erica goes into her um, response, I just want to say, I think if I had to sum up a teaching approach that I hold so dear, it's when you, when you have to have someone repeat back to you your idea, your ideas, and they have to regurgitate it, are they really learning? And are they really being creative? Just gonna throw that out there. But so, and now let's hear from Erica. No, I was gonna say, I think the four of us could do at least an entire episode, if not more than one about our performing arts camp experiences. I mean, you two at main stage, Adam and I were at Fox Rock. Mm -hmm. You know, I know how hugely in influential it, my performing arts camp experience has been in so many, so many parts of my life. Um, and in fact, CIT snack is tonight since they're still uh, not open because of COVID. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, since it's an alumni CIT snack thing, maybe I'll show up there, even if it is, you know, Zoom. Here, wait, Again, sorry, can for... you say what that is, the acronym? Oh, so CIT um, stands for, sorry, <laughs> you, you do Go it. Ahead. CIT stands for counselor Go and ahead. training. And um, when we were when we were at the summer camp, every Wednesday night they would have, um, or every night really, but especially I remember on Wednesdays it was longer. They would have something called CIT snack. The CITs would like gather and have a sandwich and a glass of something, probably bug juice or whatever. Um, and we would just like sit and talk and share news and um, stuff like that. And so the, um, our camp has been reaching out to its alumni during the pandemic, which is definitely something that you should do. I mean, that's what we're doing, um, right? And, and one of the ways they've been doing it is they've been programming these things called CIT Snack, which is for everybody, not just people who are CITs. It's for people who are, I mean, I've been to one or two of them. You see people in their 60s, people in their 80s who went to the same summer camp. It's, it's very inspiring, actually. Yeah, I, I love the alumni that. networking thing. Well, it's okay. No, I just, I love the alumni networking. I mean, it was alumni networking that you and I connected over. But, you know, 
I come from a family of teachers and lawyers. So I've been around teachers my whole life. My parents met teaching public school at the same school. But I also knew that no matter how much I had been encouraged to teach and how much I enjoyed it, I couldn't handle classroom politics. And I have taught things in every environment and in every age group from preschool through graduate school. Um, sometimes in short workshops, sometimes you know, longer classes, things like that. So it's something that I've always found myself falling back into. Um, and, and so, you know, if I'm thinking about teachers, well, I, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of that immersive experience that you're always finding these opportunities to learn. I mean, people say teachable moment, but everything is a teachable moment. There's always something there. And I mean, I can tell stories about influential teachers, you know, or teachers who gave me the power and the freedom to, to do things. Um, my creative writing teacher in high school, um, who allowed me to explore through creative writing topics that were considered at the time edgy or risque for high school students. I mean, people were scandalized because I read a short story about two men exchanging a phone number in a diner. No, that was, that was it. it. There was nothing. There wasn't even kissing. But flip the genders of the characters around a little bit and you get flack. Um, I've taught challenging things and controversial things. I taught a lot of, a lot, I mean, Adam has referred to, to my work teaching human sexuality related topics. That's, I, you know, that was my first experiences teaching were as a peer educator when I was a teenager, um, teaching HIV related topics. And so, you know, I'm used to talking about difficult things in front of different crowds. And I'm used to moderating the message because the way you talk to parents about what their children are going to learn when they take your workshop that is six weeks long and covers HIV and contraception and sexually transmitted infections and healthy relationships and substance abuse and all kinds of decision-making things is very different from the way you're gonna talk about kids or talk to kids about it, which is why I have things like massive lists of slang terms for genitalia. Um, I mean, you should see some of these lists um, and sex acts and things like that. Um, and, 
I think the 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 thing for me though is that there's also a huge amount of learning that I do through teaching and as a teacher that um and one of the places I've taught is in juvenile detention facilities. And it was really eye-opening to uncover some of the things and to unpack some of the things that I had been taught about the juvenile detention experience and about the kids that I'd be working with. I mean, there are still shocking moments in there. The first time you see them, you know, restrain and carry off a kid is horrifying. And, you know, this is in your peripheral vision as you're teaching a class here. Um, and you've got to sort of retain your focus on what you're doing and who you're talking to and 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 kind of keep things while they're doing this thing that you're watching that just looks horrible um but what i learned about these kids at their core is is you know that there are some universal truths about what people need and what people are looking for. And it's about how they get the message and not about the need. Um, you know, I'm grateful for the teachers who stepped outside of their role, like the chemistry teacher who gave me some great books in high school when she saw me reading Maya Angelou and said, have you read Toni Morrison? Have you read Margaret Atwood? And started introducing me to some of these other writers that I got very into and which led me of course to other things and, 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 um, and, and other experiences. And, you know, we talked about teaching not in the classroom. I, I ended up here because I was looking for teaching because what brought me into contact with Adam in the first place was looking for teaching. I mean, and so, you know, we've, we've had that experience. So, but that there really is a sense of collective learning and teaching within our group um, that, I mean, sure, we laugh about how I say, fuck the binary, embrace the and, and you have picked up on the idea of embrace the and, um, which, I mean, it, it does, it makes me chuckle because, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't know, I, I started saying it years ago as a, you know, as a, as a joke mostly, but it really has become meaningful to me as a way to experience the world. And I think especially this last year for me, since, you know, it's been almost a year since I started writing again in like nine months or something like that, since almost nine months since Adam and I started working together. 
has been so immersive in terms of both the experience of teaching and of learning and and not realizing necessarily, for example, when, when I've sat down with Andrew sometimes and talked through some of the stuff in his dissertation, I find that I wake up or am randomly thinking about things in a completely different way. I never would have read erotica with the same critical eye that I'm reading mountains of it right now to write this story. Never. You know, it, it, it wouldn't, I mean, partly is it, it wouldn't have occurred to me to use that as a strategy, but the way I'm analyzing it is different. Um, of course, I also probably wouldn't have woken up in the middle of the night, noticed a bottle of nail polish, and started thinking about Victorian foot fetishists, but you know that's just because I don't think about Victorians. Um, <laughs> but you do think I, about foot fetishists. What, what's what that? You're but but yeah, you do think about foot fetishists. I walked into the bathroom in the middle of the night, noticed a bottle of nail polish, and I had been thinking about what we had been talking about earlier that, that day about. Um, stereotypes and Amy Levy and Victorians and things like that. And I don't know where, you know, somehow, this is the six degrees of Kevin Bacon in your brain ADHD thing. And then that was somehow the, the nail polish got connected to something I had seen about Victorian um, piano decorations, covering the legs of the piano because of scandal which got to the whole, which then actually strangely led me to think of you, Adam. Of and that course. led me to Edwardians and foot fetish, fetishists. And that's when I went back to bed. Yeah, that's too much. That's, that's when you go that's back to bed. Well, no, I mean, that was when I was done doing what I needed to do and was falling asleep <laughs> again. But yeah, good, this good, is, good. I mean, this kind of, you know, this kind of incidental out of the classroom learning, these are things I never would have thought about. And it's totally ridiculous. And it's not like I'm going to sit down and Google it. But it's that whole experience of having learned enough new things, just random things. It's looking at Whitman's poetry in a new way. And when I wrote, I think my big think last month, and I quoted Mean Girls and Whitman together. And looked at it, I looked at it, I had written it and I looked at it and I was like, that's Andrew. That's like Andrew in my head right there, making that connection. Um, and, he's grin and he's grinning too, it's great. It's, it, it is, it's that real, like for me, that incidental learning is, is the most important thing. And like I said, I've taught everything from kids in nursery school to kids in graduate school, kids in graduate school. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say kids in graduate school because I think I was in my 20s the last time, maybe, no, maybe in my 30s, but the last time I taught at something in graduate school. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's taking learning out of traditional formats that, you know, is really important. It's it's hands-on learning and lifelong learning and and 
learning to frame things in ways that are not necessarily traditional. And the biggest lesson, and this this actually goes back to the the camp thing, Adam. Um, One of the lessons that I took home from camp is fail bravely. It's hard to soak that one up and I still struggle with it, but learning and teaching and teaching means learning to fail bravely. Um, Absolutely. And, and that's, that's a lesson that I've taken with me because when I teach my writing classes, I, I usually have a group of like three to five students, sometimes more. And I always start by writing two rules on the board. Rule number one is you must make mistakes. And rule number two is you must finish something. And you know that because for some reason you were one of my writing students. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you, you know, you don't want to admit that anymore. <laughs> you know? well, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to admit it, but I, I, I think it's actually very appropriate um, to what our dynamic is. Um, and, and here we'll get into some sort of like valedictory comments and try to like bring all of this into a sensible kind of mass that our listeners can appreciate. Um, I, think it's, I think it's very appropriate that I went with the classroom example, even though it was a conversation outside of a classroom, I went with my relationship with a classroom teacher in a school, you know, in high school, and the, the other three of you did not. And that's, that speaks to my bias as a, as a teacher, that I had a lot of trouble letting go of the idea of that, like, teaching happens in the classroom, which it can that's one of the places where it can happen, but it's not the only place and it's not really the best place. It's good at reproducing elitism. Exactly. If you, cause I have to say, Adam and I have had a lot of discussions about how Adam drank the university Kool-Aid about what it means to be an academic scholar that yeah is really changing right now. That that kind of thinking is what has led to such a silo of scholarship. And I think, you know, what we're doing here is like, you are now bringing your specialty to the public in the ivory tower boiler room. So I wouldn't say you're only teaching in a classroom. I think you've gone beyond that but like you're saying it's also it's also what you do in the classroom that's so important about do you gesture to the outside do you talk about projects that are happening on the outside and bringing them in and bringing in other voices and like I'm bringing in the ivory tower when I teach in the fall my students will listen to some of our podcast episodes especially when they read from some of the writers. I want them to listen to Lev Raphael. Like this is, you get to actually hear an interview. I mean, if I was a student and my instructor had interviewed these writers, I would be so excited to actually, right? I mean, it's almost the six degrees of separation or Kevin Bacon. Um, (laughs) And I know Erica had just reminded me of Kevin Bacon, Um, but, um, and he's from Philly, so it's like a very common phrase you hear. Um, so 
yeah, why even how YouTube videos are so helpful when you have a critical lens, right? That, you know, it's not that you can't, I mean, maybe my concluding remarks are just why the four of us all together talking about this theme of teaching broadly um, is something that is in every one of our pieces because we've been shaped and mentored. And um, like, I know the way that I have a critical eye to music and to videos would not be the same if I wasn't trained in the performing arts. Like when I watch music videos, there's a certain way, right? You see, I was just listening to a really great interview with um, Tony Basil, the singer of Hey Mickey and a very famous choreographer. Um, but like she even said, when she starts to listen to music, she goes into choreographer gear thinking this is a project I take on, but that's the way I feel when I listen to audiobooks or when I, um, in a good way, but I know once I start to listen to something that is literary, I'm going to go into the, okay, how can I use this? Or how is this gonna shape me? And you know, why my guilty pleasure is probably The Real Housewives because I'm like, oh, well, this is just so, I, I mean, I mean, I still could use it, but <laughs> it's gossipy. It's, you know, why I actually really love dishwashing to tell you the truth, because there's something about getting the stains out that makes me feel like I'm releasing tension, if that makes sense. I mean, I think some people see it cleaning that way, but um, it's, uh, yeah, why I am so grateful, truly am, that I get to, that I can teach you can really decide what to teach um, in the university. If you're lucky enough to get a course, there is a lot of flexibility of academic freedom. That is what I really gravitate towards in the university is that I can teach from the house of Murph to the vanishing half and bring in and expand the curriculum in that way and be so openly queer in my teaching, like be an openly queer scholar, where I thought about, some have asked me would I ever wanna teach in high school? And my answer is I'm not discounting teaching in high school. I think I would really enjoy it. I'm more concerned about, I would, the high school would really have to wanna to be invested in an openly queer scholarly approach and curriculum. So yes, it has to be a very progressive high school. Um, and right, if you're bringing up sex in the classroom, it can't be shut down. So, and there are high schools that let you talk about, I mean, my high school was very open about sex. And, um, but, you know, they are going to, they'll choose you um, either because they really are invested in that approach, which is great. All I know is at least because I am so openly um, committed to queer literature, um, they'll tell me if they don't want me. So <laughs> at least that's a good, um, 
you know, being so out does allow for you getting away from toxic workplaces. There is a positive. No, that's that. that's true. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's, yeah, a good my... of, that's a good way of looking at it, actually. Well, you said that I do have the optimist streak, so I can yeah. find. Yeah, who? Well, well who wants to be? So. Yeah, I mean, it's like who wants to be taught by? Um, I mean, in theater, we all know I've had. I had one director experience. Well, they were back to back. One director, and I think Erica's right. We need to continue this into August. Maybe in August, we should commit a little time to talking about our camps, because I think that really does tie into how we saw the humanities. Um, but that's to, and I know in September, we are gonna have a whole library theme. So that's to be continued. But I do wanna say about my last thought about camps, especially the camp that I went to is, it taught me about ethical directing. So when I had my first professional paid experience and the director was um, flirting with the men um, and he Underage was kind men of- too. Yes, yeah, there was, yeah, there's a whole harassment story and allegate like, it's been aired and um, he's been deplatformed from certain jobs. So it was very serious. Luckily, I did not get harassed. I mean, I didn't get abused, I'll say that. But I will say I saw him trying to see how far he could push the line with me. And I said, no, like I'm here to work. I am not here to go to the bar with you, especially when I am 18. And I can't even go to the bar with you. Um, but that same time, right after that, I had an amazing, well, you all know her, Renee Lisiaga. Um, I had a Broadway train director and I realized, wow, this is what professionalism looks like and what it means to step up to the plate. Oh, and she has such a high moral ethic and he thought he was, he thought he was doing a Broadway production, but he did not, he was never, he wasn't treating people as equals. And I realized that, you know, I learned what not to accept from that kind of experience with him, but I learned what to accept from Renee and how to carry forth mentoring. She is still my mentor. You all know that. And um, right, just cause you have, Right, the negative experiences do inform. They always inform your teaching of, um, please don't let me re replicate what I um, pick, what I learned or that kind of toxicity, right? You learn from toxicity. Um, I just hope, you know, following from Helana, I just hope you don't get, um, abused, right? I mean, it's, yeah, the line is very um, thin and uh, yeah, stay away. I, I wish I could say stay away, but once you see the warning signs of, if you can get away from that toxic person, like I've realized I do not wanna be taught by someone who has that type of behavior. So 
Yeah. Teachers who, teachers who instill in you your value. Renee instilled in me my value as a actor and what I should, that I have worth. That's important. And that's something that I hope I do with my students. It's something I think about a lot. Are we, right? Are you instilling agency in them? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, Mary, do you want to get a last word in? No, we're good. Um, well, so I, I want to say one thing um, to the three of you, which is that I definitely like what you were saying, Andrew, about, about learning being collaborative and about learning um, extending to the outside world. I definitely didn't do enough of that as a teacher. Right, I, 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 get, I get tunnel vision. And um, I will say that this, um, this collaboration, right, the, this podcast, this blog that we're involved in um, has, been, has been a real learning experience for me. And that's, that to me is what makes a good teacher is somebody who's willing to learn from their students and from their peers, right? And, and, and this idea, what public scholarship ultimately means to me what we're doing here is making sure that that learning doesn't just take place in the classroom because if it does then that privileges the learning of the classroom right when what we should be doing is privileging the act of learning itself right right so, so what what you're talking about doing is is turning the class when you lecture at the university turning the classroom into the outside world or turning it towards the outside world right and the other thing that we talked about doing is turning the outside world into a kind of classroom. And I think that that's, that's a really nice, um, that's a really nice idea. And it's something I'm proud to be part of. And so, I hope we're doing that here too. I mean, that's what I love about that our podcast is free. Yeah. Is, you know, why, um, our website is free. And yes, I will say we do really now get excited from our donating subscribers, but we will always offer free content in some yes. form because that has always been our mission is to share with the public. And if you do become our subscriber, yes, you do get invited to parties and giveaways, but, and we appreciate it. If you can donate to us, we do appreciate it. Um, but I also want to say, there's a reason why I urge people to watch my lectures on YouTube. I, mean, I know I'm saying the word get lecture. When I say lecture though, for the YouTube videos, they are geared towards the public. Um, and they are all on YouTube, they're free. I am not hiding my, I am not hiding my research only in the classroom. Like, yes, do my students get more time to hear my connections of Mean Girls and Whitman? I mean, they probably hear more of Hocus Pocus and Whitman in the fall because I'm a fanatic. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a certain, um, there are conversations that you're privy to in the classroom, but um, no, I'm just so excited for this, our group and collaboration and really appreciate that we're doing a whole focus on education. This is, 
so necessary. And I thank the team. We have opened up a lot. And again, I think we've all said we do not hold, we hold the keys to open our own doors of creativity, but we don't hold the ultimate answers for not continuing. That's what I want to end on. Lifelong learning that I, I never want to close the door that I have the answers for learning and pedagogy. I don't. I continue to surprise myself. You have, I have to, right? You have to continue to be, see yourself as a student who's able to be malleable. <laughs> I, I think, I think some of actually the, some of the most incredible moments that, you know, and, and of course, you know, we've been experiencing life in a pandemic where we're all very isolated and, 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 and most of our interactions with other people are either, you know, Zoom or phone or, you know, not face-to-face. -face. But one of the most incredible experiences I've gotten to have in my time on Zoom in this pandemic, in this ivory tower boiler room though, is actually watching Andrew work through some of his dissertation stuff when I first started coming around. And it brought me back all of that joy and love and inspiration and motivation for, um, for teaching. Um, watching those those connections get made and those like those leaps forward happen. Um, well, I appreciate. So I'm really grateful to have this experience both as a student and as somebody who has also been a teacher. Great, I appreciate it. Well, thank you all and. <sighs> Thanks to our listeners. Um, we will be back with our August Big Think. Um, and please enjoy all of the interviews that we, well, um, have airing, especially we have um, Halana's Me Too PhD series coming out right after this. So, um, you know, we really value all of you out there because you're part of the community. You really are. Okay, bye everyone. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now here's our theme song, Loverman. Written by Jimmy Davis, Roger Ramirez, and James Sherman. In a new rendition co-created by Anne-Sophie Anderson and Megan Ames.